All right, guys, welcome back to the Adam Peter Fitness Podcast. Today on the show, I have Matthew Holden, who is, I believe you are the, the director of programming at Game Day Barbell, correct, and, and, and coaching? Yeah, yeah. So the official title, which uh, Joe gave me free reign to come up with, is director of online coaching. Um, unfortunately, he did not go for a grand overlord of oh, online coaching, over, yeah. but yeah, yeah. So we went with the leader. It sounds a little bit better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I don't know why that didn't pass, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. JoJo probably didn't want to give you too, too much power so you didn't get too, too, too corrupted. <laughs> exactly. My, my, my head would have gotten too big there, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But um, going in, like, I know that you guys at Game of Marvel, um, like you guys are doing a lot of like really cool, cool things. You yourself, you coach, um, you know, you guys have a ton of fantastic athletes under you on some of the top, you know, USAPL um, pros right, right, right now. And I know that you coach like Daniel Clements and uh, I believe like uh, a few other notable, really strong people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I told Matt before this on the, on the show, you know, one of my main goals of this podcast is to really just help provide more information to powerlifters and coaches out there um, to basically provide some more actual programming information since the exercise science data. I mean, unfortunately, it doesn't really scope the people that are, you know, squatting 700 pounds and trying to get stronger still, you know. So um, it's, just, it's really great to have uh, Matt on. Um, you know, Game of Barrel, too. I know that you guys just like started your gym about, I think it was like right after COVID, right? Yeah. So the actual physical location was opened. Oh, Lord, I'm losing track of time now because I, I was not involved in that whatsoever. The, the physical location stuff I had nothing to do with, but the online coaching did start up right at the same time. So I want to say right around 2020 could be off there though. Um, but they're, they're going on about two years now or so of operations down in Austin yeah. and, and it's going really, really well. Mm -hmm. So do you, how, what, do you, uh, do you currently oversee any parts of, of the gym or are you just exclusively online? So I oversee all the online um, operations uh, alongside Joe. We sort of tag team it together. Um, but just making sure that all the coaches are being managed properly, um, sort of mentored along the way as well. We just hired two new coaches. So we announced one today um, and then we'll be announcing the other hiring tomorrow. And then we have some cool programs in the works as well. Awesome, man. Yeah, I know you guys are doing some really cool, cool things over there. And so it's good. It's good to see, you know, basically I, one of the things I was talking about in my, my story the other day was like, there's a lot of like the piloting coaching quality right now is just so great right now. Um, you know, the best, mm -hmm. the best good coaches and we're really, you know, best athletes and things are sort of, you know, improving. Um, and so I kind of wanted to go off of that um, note and sort of talk about the first topic I think is rather interesting. And I haven't really heard it discussed very often is um, there are basically three sort of types of powerlifters or I would classify them as like training responses. There's more of the, you know, a little higher volume, more so maximal loading for um, more, more volume. There's usually the more of the middle road, you know, Tops that you know average in intensity, you know, five to eight um, moderate amounts of volume. So like you know, 10 to 15 sets or something like that a week. Uh, and then there's usually the people that respond a lot better to like higher peak intensities with a lower average in, in intensity. And I, I guess really there's, there's a discussion here is sort of how do you figure out what is your best training response? Like, is that even possible? Is there a systematic way that you and practice maybe go about, you know, you get a new a new athlete, um, you know, and you don't know anything about their training history. Say, you know, they just ran some, they ran like can Candidos program. Like, how would you go about sort of, and what things would you would be, be looking for with determining that with an athlete, what the best training response is? So one important disclaimer that I think is worth mentioning is the fact that an, an individual athlete themselves is going to be dynamic to some degree. So during certain periods of their training career, they might be the high volume, just like, well, can I cuss on this podcast? Yeah, go ahead. 
okay, beat the shit out of yourself sort of lifter. Uh, at other times, they might have a lot of uh, stress going on outside of training that requires them to pull back the training volume a lot, and they just need high-intensity exposures to maintain skill. And the reason I point that out is because I've had that same thing happen as I've taken on new endeavors in, in my professional life. So um, I think it's important to consider that even once you figure out what is sort of that maximum adaptive range, uh, it might change, and you have to be able to dynamically respond to that as a coach. With that out of the way, uh, if you are just starting with a lifter, um, I think a good rule of thumb is less is more. I, you can always you can you can always scale back if you need to, but I think from a lifter's psychology standpoint, they might do better if they see the dial being turned up than having them go a little bit too hard and then trying to turn the dial back on on their training volume or their intensity and whatnot. So uh, I think less is more is generally a good rule of thumb. And also a guiding principle for me is I want to try to get the most return on investment with whatever training protocol I'm giving somebody. So not doing needless volume, making sure that everything is very intentional and targeted. Um, so I would say if, if you were to graph out all coaches and all their approaches with like level of aggression, taking all components into consideration, whether that's frequency, intensity, volume, specificity, I'm probably like right in the middle of the bell curve and maybe even a little bit to the left of the center of the bell curve. Um, so I typically do fall a little bit more conservative with some of the prescriptions that I'll prescribe. There's obviously exceptions to that where I will really ramp up the intensity or the specificity volume, whatever for an athlete. Uh, but from like day one, I'm usually going to fall to the left of the middle of the bell curve, um, just slightly. So in determining, uh, what it, my answer now would probably be a bit different than if you asked me this like three or four years ago. Um, honestly, you lean on anecdote a lot. Uh, typically once you're established as a coach, when a new lifter comes to you, if they're providing you with basic demographic information, some relevant training history, even if it is just, I ran Candido's program, you can look up Candido's program, see what their frequencies look like and, and whatnot. Um, you can use that information and then things that you've learned along the way, working with similar athletes, um, and then sort of piece together a plan from there, making subtle adjustments along the way. So, um, I don't know if that was a helpful answer or if that muddied the waters even more with finding it. Cause I, I don't know if there's a one size fits all approach with this. Um, and I know before the podcast, we were talking like this, this is a conversation back and forth because really it's just creating buy-in, creating buy-in with whatever your system is um, when working with athletes. So uh, what do you think is sort of like step one with, with the same process? Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, personally, I, I sort of fall a little bit more like what you said about, I'm a little bit like less aggressive with the volume and the intensity, mostly because like a lot of my, you know, history, like education is like athletic training. And so for me, okay. some of the things in the back of my mind is how can I get this athlete to, to progress for the longer term without, without getting number one hurt or, and two minimizing risk of burnout. And I like what you said about how you could actually like modify the training approach and think that, you know, there's, there's several different ways to get an athlete stronger. Um, it depends a lot on their lifestyle and how they're currently responding and their current recovery resources. Um, like typically what I will usually respond, like to start out with though, is usually, you know, a very generic, like frequency and then like top set downs approach, probably primary day and then more volume day, you know, maybe start within six to 12 sets of like weekly volume on each lift. And then depending on like they need any more, any more training stress, usually why I did deduce is, are they do they respond better to more in like more specificity on a lift? And do they need that specifically from a skill practice standpoint is the number one thing. Um, and 
also like how durable are they are they with that movement like for example with, with myself i am not built for squatting it destroys me um and so for myself while my training approach is a little more so maximal because of that um on my most of my, my, my volume but higher peak intensities i need that exposure to really challenge my technique um and then i do a lot of more volume and then Going off of that, I guess if we're talking about like what does somebody respond best to, typically I'll look at is over a training block. Do they like where do I see like the most adaptation happen? Versus mm -hmm. where do I start to see their peak start to tape happen? Because one of the things I do differently, I think, is that for most coaches, is I start off more beginners with a lot more intensity. Um, like I'm usually having the I want them to really like work work hard again. I want to maximize the, the stimulus per exposure to minimize risk of injury. And usually I have more of a static RPE because they can adapt that away. So let's say it's the only season, it's a seven to nine within that range. And then once it stops working, usually I'll do like more of a ramping RPE approach and try to create predictability within a dynamic RPE system with that. And over that time period, I notice probably somebody that actually gets better response, but for starting out lower than ending higher. And how like how wrecked do they get from that higher intensity? Or do they just start off lower intensity and like nothing really happens until they get those higher? into and, 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 like the adaptation and then i'm like okay probably his person responds a little bit better to that um so i think that what i mostly look for is like how's there is like the fatigue patterns when determining this because mm -hmm. i know some people like really do respond better to higher intensity stuff with like a little bit less volume and i think that could also just be due to like maybe they're a little bit better leverage for that or um what i like and one of the things i think that why john hack is such a good powerlifter is he can do the most specific thing <laughs> and keep getting stronger right. i right. think for everybody else it's like how can we get some of response but like some people have to be like way less specific to that one repetition max task mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think just i mean i i don't want to get too on too much of a tangent because this is something no, that is ties into before, so go ahead. right exactly this is something that ties into uh a really important thing that I've taken from my experience in strength and conditioning coaching into powerlifting, and that's long-term athletic development. Um, and a lot of my coaching principles and sort of guiding principles center around that idea, knowing that most drug tested raw powerlifters are probably going to peak in strength in their late twenties, early thirties. So how do I program to keep them interested in building to those later stages? Cause people are getting into the sport at an incredibly young age and it just keeps getting younger and younger as time goes on. Cause it's gaining popularity especially on social media and whatnot. So that is with that in mind, that is why I usually are on the side of being conservative with my prescriptions. Cause I'm like, I need these people to be interested in the sport in a decade. And hopefully they want me along for the ride that entire time. That'd be great. Cause I would love to guide them for that entire process. Um, but my belief would be if I go too hard on intensity, specificity or anything, um, you could argue there's maybe some desensitization going on with training stimulus, whatever. But also I think it could just lead to more burnout, like you mentioned. And, um, yeah, so that, that's kind of the guiding principle for me. I would say, um, a few things that I do track just less theoretical and more like pragmatic things that I actually do as a coach. Um, I track soreness, stress, um, I track, uh, feelings of preparedness going into sessions. So just mental headspace, how are they feeling going into a session? What is their energy level like? So that's all logged next to each individual training session. So I can get a lot of valuable data from that and know, okay, is this something that is sustainable for them? Can they continue building across a block? And if maybe in week three of the block, if all of those metrics were reading very, very high, and then week four and five, their output tails off from there, then that's a good enough indication that, okay, we were a little bit too 
harsh with the intensity or the volume, whatever we decided to push during that phase of training. Um, also on the spreadsheet that we use, we have a macro cycle tracker that it tracks estimated one rep max and it tracks things over a long period of time. So we can start to pull correlations from the data itself and what was present in the training during that period. Um, whether that's microcycle layout, whether that's the average intensity, how many total working sets per week. So really, it's just a matter of checking out those correlations and seeing, okay, is there anything going on here? And how can we use that as information that can help individualize a plan over time? Um, and all of those things considered kind of leads into this idea of like, what is the maximum stimulus I can give somebody to where they can continue adapting long term without running into desensitization, injury, or psychological burnout, even though that might be hard to quantify and certainly diagnose. I mean, I'm, that's outside of my scope, you know? Totally. You know, I, I, I think that that's a, a really good point about keeping that a long-term interest because, um, you know, this is, you know, fundamentally this is a boring sport. <laughs> you know, we do the same. Yeah, it's super monotonous. Like, especially like once you get like, be like more intermediate, it's like, you know, you kind of need to wait like a month in most cases, like to see like, am I actually getting stronger or not? Um, and then having the, you know, I, I think what you said earlier, though, is I think a big part of it is like having athlete buy-in. And I think that psychological expectations around training and among my hypothesis is that one of the things that athletes probably respond best to is what they were most excited about. So like, if I give somebody like a high intensity or an assistant single and they do a little like less back on volume, if they're more excited than that than doing instead of like a five by five, likelihood they're probably going to try harder on that and they'll probably have a better adaptive response. I also think that I'll have some conversations with my athletes because they, they have an RPE nine single on like a deadlift and they're like, I'm so wrecked. I'm going, mm -hmm. or, or, or I'm going to be so wrecked after this workout. I'm like, are you like, maybe we could like, you know, I'm say, you know, this was a hard set. I, so David, I have pockets with David Wilson about this. And David was like, I don't think like a single at nine is like, or 10 is like even like inherently that fatiguing because if that was all you're doing in the program, I don't think you have like that much fatigue. I think it's everything in, in the entire program that's getting you like fatigue and that all kind of like blends together. And so I like kind of like no signaling yourself into thinking like this is because this this is hard like I'm not going to going going to to adapt. Um, right. I definitely think I think a psychological that's that's what I usually actually like when I'm going back everywhere everything. A lot of times when I look when I look through my individual training plans, it does come down to like what are the, was my client like doing the most. Yeah, definitely. Well, because you could argue that if you have good client buy-in, they're really engaged with their training that's going to sort of artificially bump up whatever their maximum recoverable volume is anyways. You know, how much stress can they handle when they enjoy it versus when they resent training? Um, I know I've dealt with that before where there's been blocks of training where there's variations present and I just, I don't want to do that variation for any number of reasons. Similarly, I'm built horribly for squats. So if I see something like a high bar squat where I know my long femurs are going to get exposed even more, uh, I get less excited about training. And there's a psychological weight to that that probably knocks down, one, how much I can recover from because I'm just kind of dragging myself through the session, but also how long can I run that same training protocol? I, I'm not going to want to do that for like block after block after block building on that particular variation, for example. So I think you do have to play into client interest some while also not losing yourself along the way. Like if you have your principles, you have your ways that you build progressions over time, you have to kind of respect those and honor those while still meeting the client's needs. Um, and very importantly, I mean, we talk about buy-in and compliance and whatnot. Um, that's not an inherent thing when you start with an athlete, you know, it's sometimes it's a matter of building that buy-in and, and getting them to believe in your approach, um, which is a whole another podcast episode itself. 
Yeah. No, that's a, and, and that, that's a huge part. And that's why I think that like, you know, one of the things about like coaching is like, I think that like actually like I was listening to the R- RTS podcast with like, Patrick Kwan and Mike to share on this, but like, like sometimes you have to like, you know, like I think the most important part too, like, one of the most important parts of, of coaching too is like actually like believing in your coach and trusting their training system and like, you know, feeling so excited to like work with that coach because um, like, I think sometimes like the athletes that might ju- like jump ship with like a coach, they just might not be excited about like what the coach is doing or what they're um, or like basically feeling like they're asked cared for or, or whatever. And like having like also like personalities mesh is an important part of things like, you know, you want to enjoy the overall training process. Um, so that's sort of, I, I, I can see that in a certain sense, but like, like, I don't know, like I've worked with my coach, Eric Bodhorn for seems like two years at this point, a little, bit, a little bit over that. And like, I don't have any plans leaving him because like everything that we've, we've done and like, you know, was I also coached my, myself, like I, a lot of it comes down to like, like, like what you said about you know, like psychological preference and whatever. And like, for me, like, I don't like going, like, I liked going like really high RPE in the beginning when I was training, like I was, I would come in and I would just match all, like all, all the times so I was getting stronger. Now I was to see like a single at nine to 10, like every single session, I'd be like, this isn't going to be fun. Like I'm going to feel like crap all, all, all the time. And, then I'm not going to try very hard. <laughs> right, right. No, and I think, so that that's a component off of it. I mean, the way that I view it is, you know, we're talking maximum adaptive range. And then there's a bunch of these, like, it's a mind map, things that branch off of it. And you could go different directions with what actually affects that. Um, but again, I think for pragmatic advice sake, uh, tracking some of those things that are measurable is really helpful early on. So just seeing how they not just what the data looks like on like, okay, this is what their top set was or their average intensity, whatever. See how they feel about the training and, and are they sore? Do they feel like it's fitting their schedule? Well, that's something I'm always, I asked that on my intake questionnaire form actually is uh, how much time can you dedicate to training per day? Cause I don't want training to be burdensome for people. It needs to fit a, a daily schedule very well. Cause more often than not, you're not going to work with somebody who can structure their entire day around a training session. People have a lot of other things going on. Um, so in those instances, I like to also consider that, is it fitting into their schedule? Well, um, because that's also going to affect what they can actually recover from, because if it's adding unneeded stress, unneeded, or it's excessive time in the gym, maybe it's taken away from their ability to recover outside of it. And and so it's all, all of those things are, are tied together, but just make sure that you do have some measurable metrics that you can actually track over time. And then it's just about pulling correlations from there. Yeah, and I, I I think that you know like you said there's there's a, there's there's this is a range you know maximum adaptive volume and intensity it is it is a range um and having things that actually like track um or is important I obviously I think like for powerlifters like like from like an objective standpoint like it's like am I getting stronger like am I able to set a five pound PR on my squat and deadlift like month to month right. or every other month on like my bench press so, like something like that like that, that's the the end all be all. But I think that everything else, like I was like, you know, obviously that's it's, it's going to take you know, time as an intermediates to like see those adaptations. Like I think what you mm-hmm. said about what's the most important thing there is like having a volume and an overall training approach that facilitates that strength progression that fits with that athlete's psychological preference. Because like some athletes, they really like knowing I can go really heavy on one set, then I have these really easy like breezy back down work. It feels good. It's moving fast. Whatever I had that psychological desire to like really beat myself up with like a heavy or, or top set. And then uh, easy breezy down sets. Other people like they like just doing a little bit more volume and just slowly going up, and they don't really like having very many top sets. And uh, most powerlifters will fall somewhere in, in the middle of that. And yeah, again, definitely. Modern, modern powerlifting programs, I think, like 
across a training week, it's like you can kind of fit all those things in. <laughs> Anyways, like a DP format. You, you certainly can, whether that occurs across a week or a three, four month plan, you know, and just, it, I think prefacing certain blocks with sort of what the expectation is. I, I know, um, so as a part of my master's studies here at JMU, I took a class, it um, looked at endurance sport physiology. And we were talking about like phase potentiation, phase periodization approaches for triathletes and whatnot. And they were talking about this Lydiard approach, which is Lydiard was a track coach from way back in the day that worked with endurance athletes. And uh, the professor said during peak volume phase, it just sucks. Like you have to get through that phase as the athlete, but it's really good because it's like a giant SRA curve on the yep. tail end of that. Once you scale volume back, really good things happen and you have a positive response. It's the same thing with powerlifters. You know, if there's going to be a period that's maybe just a little bit more punishing for them, it doesn't fit their preferences, explain to them why that's valuable. And, and that is going to get them more engaged and would probably make them more capable of handling a slightly higher training load and getting something out of it. Um, but again, I mean, I'm saying that as if I'm like a hyper aggressive coach with everything. I tend to stay on the less is more and try to get a lot out of very little with, with training. And then you can always turn the dial up during or like certain periods of the year or long-term as time goes on, because you got to think long-term. I think that is something that most coaches lack really, really bad in this sport. Um, especially as these younger athletes come in, they push them super hard. You get young athletes that are locked onto like national world records early on. And for me, I just think that is a like very straight and narrow path towards psychological burnout because it happens across all different sports. But anyways, off my soapbox now. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with, with all that. I think that this would be a good, like, shutting off point for talking about, like, you know, so you're having somebody, and this is where most powerlifters actually find themselves, like, transitioning from, like, the beginner powerlifter stage to the to the intermediate. Like, what are some main things that athletes should focus on to maximize their development as an intermediate and not become a, a forever lifetime intermediate? So, um, one thing I'll preface it with is some people are just going to be bound to be a lifetime intermediate because, ultimately, genetics are the one thing that we can't do anything about really. Um, so some people, even if you put the perfect plan together, they're never going to get their national qualifying total and they're never going to take that step into being considered advanced or an elite lifter, which is okay. You, you are trying to make the best out of whatever you have when you're working with an athlete. Um, as my boss here says, uh, I love the saying, uh, you can't make chicken salad out of chicken shit. So if you have chicken shit genetics, you are never going to be a great athlete. It, it just is what it is. So all that to say, uh, when you are going from beginner stages, uh, my approach generally is going to be focused on the specificity piece. Um, I've got to turn the, that dial up a little bit, get a little bit more specific practice in, um, maybe more intentional variation work even where we're not just doing variation for variation's sake to keep specificity low, but we're using variations to address deficiencies in movement or if there's some sort of potential weakness or a leverage consideration, you know, doing that and making sure that the variation work is very targeted. Um, on top of that, you're probably going to start to try to ramp up uh, the, I'll say the aggression of the training prescription and, and have that impact the training workload. Uh, by that, I mean, during the early stages of training, like you mentioned with the static RPE for beginners, usually you don't need to ramp RPE for somebody who's new to lifting because you can stay at a relative intensity and they're just going to adapt. Every time they step in the gym, they're getting five pounds on each lift. You know, um, you don't need to try to give them the nudge towards increasing intensity and getting them stronger. When you get to intermediate and 
that curve starts to get a little bit more plateau-esque, then you might have to do some things to give them the nudge in the right direction um, instead of just letting training do its thing. That being said, if the training plan has been individualized up to that point, then you might just be able to ride it out. Um, there's other considerations too. During the earlier stages, um, this is not related to specific training protocols, but during the earlier stages, I usually try not to get too anal with like recovery metrics and nutritional practices, sleep, that sort of thing. Making sure that like early on people know you need to sleep well, you need to sleep enough, eat like prioritize protein, that sort of thing. Knowing that those are valuable, I think it's good during the earlier stages. But once they get into intermediate, if they're really trying to pursue becoming a great lifter, start making that quantifiable. Say like, you need to track your sleep. You need to start actually like weighing food and, and like tracking your nutrition, making sure that that's in check because the training stimulus itself is not going to be working in your favor quite as much at that point compared to how it did early on where you were just soaking up all the training stimulus because you're brand new to it. Um, so making sure that those things are in check as well. Um, but aside from that, I don't, I don't think much needs to happen aside from just continuing to train with a plan that is tailored to the individual. Um, thinking of like the other training components, even, I mean, intensity usually can be held about the same from my experience um, because it scales with the lifter's strength level. If your max is three, I think Ed Cohen had an interview in which somebody asked him, what's it feel like to squat 800 pounds? And he was like, well, what's your max? The guy said 400 or 500 pounds, whatever it was. He's like, it feels like you squatting 500 pounds. It's like, that's my max now. You know, so intensity scales as you get stronger. I don't think you need to force that or do anything over the top with it. Um, the, the biggest principle that I think about, like I said, is going to generally be specificity. So and to, about to clarify, specificity, yeah. like movement type specificity starts to get more yeah. dialed in. Yeah. So it's essentially like, and that is, uh, I heard you say earlier, like targeted variations. And I'm assuming that becomes like mostly for the purpose of skill practice and like, you know, self-limiting things. Like I actually think like less for self-limiting, like, I don't know, it's like the thing about self-limiting variations, like, I think there is some value to that, but also I think RP6 and RP6, you know, it's like, it doesn't really matter in my opinion. Yeah. Unless, um, unless there's some concern with like total workload and you want the lifter to hit a certain RPE. So they get like, whether it's a hypertrophic stimulus or you want skill practice and you just want them to feel a hard rep, um, yeah. using maybe like a front squat so they only can hit, I don't know, 60% Joe's of what they can do. Now, front squat. <laughs> oh, dude, I, nah, Joe, Joe, I, we, have, we have different opinions on the front squat, I think. Um, I, I've seen it valuable in a few instances, but not. I, I'm not one to prescribe it often. Um, yeah. But yeah, so for me, specificity is more to do, well, I... I lean hard into like long-term motor learning theory and shit with long-term athletic development. Um, and there's some value to challenging different movement patterns and just giving an athlete a, a unique or a novel stimulus and letting them learn something from that. Um, so that's something actually, I've done with, go ahead. I take a similar approach um, because the reason why is because like, especially like for Greg Knuckles, maybe me aware of this when I was going through some of the stronger by science stuff is that like, that like, I actually like as, as beginners, I don't really get in very many like variations. Like, I don't know like what they need to work on. I'm like, here, like, go with squat, bench, deadlift, see like what sucks and like what doesn't. It's like for me, it's like something like you know, I always be like, I'm the worst person asked about deadlift technique because I just deadlift and I've always been good at it. Um, but like having like more of that different strategies, like it basically it increases your movement strategy 
like in your brain and become better at like navigating to like, oh, off the floor and assume a deadlift feels hard. That's fine. If I stay in like position of like a pause dead deadlift, I'm going, I'm, I'm able to, to move better. And I, like also because we also, I think that hypertrophy matters a lot for long-term strength progression. I think that we don't talk enough about the skill aspect of being stronger and that neurological mm -hmm. aspect. A lot of that comes down to having different movement strategies. And I, I like what you 100%. said though about like how also like that can sometimes like increase like your adaptive ceiling because like it just increases the different also like from an injury prevention standpoint, it is also distributing load differently on the tissue slightly. There's slightly different loading preferences it's, and um, that can help prevent injury. And also from a psychological standpoint, well, I mean, mm -hmm. um, it has something different this this block. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's playing into the idea of late sports specialization. That's where I get this idea from, where they found correlations between athletes who wait until they're 18, 19 years old to specialize in one sport. And those athletes tend to get to higher levels of competitiveness in their sport versus if somebody like think travel baseball, for example, somebody when they're 10 years old, they just play baseball from that point onward. There's a correlation with those athletes that those athletes are not going to make it to quite as high of a level. Maybe it's just a coincidence. You know, it's you can never get a true one-to-one -one causation with this sort of thing. But point being, with movement types, I think with young lifters especially or beginners, there's some of that going on still where you can develop movement competency and also make them more intuitive in training. Because even with coaching, I don't care if you do daily check-ins with your coach, you might hit a set and you're like, that felt off. Foot pressure felt off. Something felt off. Uh, what, what can I do? Well, if you've only done low bar squats, you might not be quite as adaptive versus if you've done like 20 different variations, not suggesting everybody needs to do that. But point being, you're, you're kind of adding tools to a theoretical toolbox, I think. And just you're, you're more capable of training um, in the moment, let alone how that affects long-term progression, you know. Um, but so moving into out of beginner into intermediate, uh, typically I would kind of bottleneck the, the the variation work you know instead of on a secondary day doing some weird tempo high bar movement for the lifter maybe now we start exploring tempo or pause low bar you know as, as their secondary movement let's get them a little bit closer to the competition lift and movement type and see if there is a positive response to that um, because there should be it's also kind of playing into this idea of um when i first started getting into coaching one of the first things i read was a thoughtful pursuit of strength by chad wesley smith um, he talks about the idea of there being a pyramid where early on at the bottom of the pyramid you want that base to be as wide as possible so long-term development relies on building a wide robust base and then from there as you start to climb the pyramid meaning you're becoming more advanced things start to narrow and he talked about um, um Oh, I forget if it was Milenichev. I some Russian lifter who was like the peak super heavyweight non-tested lifter at the time. Um, his training was just squat bench deadlift. Uh, at least that was his understanding of it. So incredibly specific at that point. And the thought is he's already checked all the boxes along the way. He's got the variation work early. He's obviously gotten plenty of hypertrophy work because you want to be strong without muscle size. So he's checked these boxes along the way. To he's at the point now where he just needs to do the lifts and practice those. Um, so heading in that direction during the intermediate stage, I think is helpful. Um, I have seen a really cool, and I won't get too far into this, but I have seen another really cool model that describes um, sort of like if an hourglass was turned on its side and, and like time is on the X axis there. So 
things are a little bit more broad early on, you can get away with a lot of variation work. There's a period during like maybe the intermediate to advanced period where you narrow that a lot, give them a very specific stimulus for a period of time. And then once they get into maybe like master's one age division, you then rebroaden that just to keep them mentally engaged. Maybe you're working around injuries at that point. So I think that's also a decent model. I think, um, if I'm not mistaken, Mike Touchere and Jordan uh, Feigenbaum talked about it on either the RTS or the um, Barbell Medicine podcast. I saw that a while back. But point being, during the intermediate phase, either you're moving up that theoretical pyramid or you're getting pretty close to the middle of that hourglass. So it's probably good from a specificity standpoint to turn the dial up just a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a... Uh... Man, that's there's a lot of really good, good 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 things here because I think this really is. I love how you said you know you bring out the a long term athletic development standpoint. I think that is you know like that's exactly exactly what we're doing. And I know that you also said in the beginning, um, you got to pay attention a lot more to everything else outside of the gym. Um, and mm-hmm. like for a lot of times, it's just like um, one of the things I always say to my clients, I'm like, they're like, I'm not making progress. I'm like, what are you not doing that you know that you, that you should be doing? And they're like, right. oh, I'm not sleeping. My stress is really high. I'm like, that's why you're not making progress. Yeah, because yeah. as an intermediate, like you have to have everything like in check. It's like my myself, I'm a chronic under eater. And once I started to eat enough food, it's like, Adam, what happened? I'm like, I started eating enough food. And 100%. it's like, that's literally, I think that's a, that's a big thing. And I think that lots of times like, yeah, the volume requirement might go up, but usually that's taken care of. Like, it's a very slight increase is what I find like in beginner intermediate, intermediate stage. And one of the things that people even don't realize is that by getting stronger, <laughs> you're going to have more volume go up anyways. Um, exactly it just takes care of, of, of itself um but like really just paying attention to that stuff and ask yourself am i willing to like pay the price to get stronger um like you know, somebody like bob matthews he, he the reason why he makes such good progress besides being having the genetics to be bob matthews um he's on top of everything i've had conversations with with marcellus and marcellus like bob isn't this like bob's always on he is point. oddly type a with everything it's incredible yeah. I've, I've i don't know any other lifter who's as dialed in um it's it's impressive. And, and I think the the reason you have to have those things in check is because diminishing return, you know, that it happens, you can't avoid the plateau effect that occurs with training. It eventually hits everybody. And, and your goal is to just maximize the height of that plateau and delay it as much as possible. You know, how long can I keep progress going and how high can I get that progress to occur? And at the intermediate stage, it's going to start to taper off a little bit. And therefore you have to get these other things in check um, because it's, again, the training's not going to do that for yourself or for yeah. itself, I should say. Yeah. I think another, another part of this, because we did, did talk about the skill component um, is that, you know, going in muscle mass too, because I think we've been talking about how important that is with muscle mass. Like a lot of things that the beginners will do is they'll be like, well, especially in junior lifters, they'll be like in these lower weight classes because, you know, they're not as advanced. And, you know, a lot of times like the key to making more of that continued progress is just filling out your frame more and becoming, more muscular because the interesting 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 thing about this sport is that you can kind of go from like well i'm advanced at this weight class to like i'm like more of a beginner now um mm-hmm. because you went up a weight class you have more muscle mass one of the things too is that also going on with the te- technique thing is that your leverages are going to, going to be better likely you're probably going to be a better lifter and have better technique as a result of having that more muscle mass and so obviously you know i think also with like variations and whatnot you know you can also like utilize a cold script bench press so like a you know a comp grip bench to get a little bit more you know muscle damage a little bit longer range, range of motion um and so you know it can be kind of a tough pill for some people as well but i think like you know one thing i always remind my lifters like it's cool if you you know you have like a world 
junior developer record. I'm not going to say nobody cares, but it's cooler to like be like an open record holder, national 100%. record holder. Yeah. And I mean, really weight classes are just height classes in disguise. I've heard that, that mantra before, and it's a hundred percent true. Um, I started as a 74 kilo lifter. I'm about five ten, And I, cause I, I played um, soccer in college and then immediately transitioned into powerlifting from that. So I was very, very skinny at that point. Um, started as a 74 first. I only did one meet there cause I had a water cut. I was like 18. I don't know why I did that anyways. Mm. Um, but I was like four inches, five inches taller than everybody else I was competing against. And I was like, okay, that's probably a good indication that I'm not where I need to be. So I moved to 83. Uh, same thing. But now I was like two to three inches. I was like, okay, what's going on yeah. here? Went to 90. And finally, I'm competing against people about my size. And now I kind of float between the 90 and the 100 kilo class. So, um, yeah, I definitely think once you get to the intermediate stage, starting to actually consider that. Um like where does the lifter best fit early on in beginner stage, just let them train. Whatever yeah. happens, happens as a result of uh, hypertrophy, you know, you're going to gain weight. That's fine. Um, but encouraging them to let that occur and not be super tied to things like records and weight classes or, or whatever, you know, um, because I mean, people do care about them, you know, but they don't matter that much. And also they're fleeting. Somebody's going to take that record in a year or two, yeah, probably. Absolutely. So, um, trying to get them to zoom out a little bit and see the bigger picture. And then in the intermediate stage, I think you can really start to be strategic with it. Say like, Oh, well, if you go a couple kilos over your weight class, then you can do a fat loss phase and then water cut into your comp. Yeah. Um, you know, that that's good. So yeah, I, I, I don't think anything magical has to happen in the intermediate stage. Um, aside from being a little bit more targeted and specific with what you're doing. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I I think that like it's funny like, I made a real like how it feels to be five foot eleven on powerlifting meet like like you're just, you're, like you're just like a giraffe. <laughs> I swear. Um. Yeah. I was, like I like you know I compete this last meet at like I cut from like one ninety two to like one like eighty one. <laughs> uh, was like twenty four hour twenty four hour weigh in that sucked but like you know everybody like also like eighty two point five is like five six I'm like five eleven like I'm still strong here but it's just like my coach is like you know Eric's always said like okay, like, you kind of just need to, like, gain weight. And also, by the way, I would really remind people that, like, somebody, like, in my stage, I've been pretty, like, deprived to maintain within, like, a, a, a cut like, of, of that weight, weight class of 24-hour weigh-in. Like, once you do start to eat enough, you're probably going to start gaining weight because there's a lot of preparatory hypertrophy, and you're probably kind of, like, de depleted anyways holding that weight. Like, I just started yeah. eating up from, like, 194 already, so. Right, right. Yeah, I think – um I, I don't know. I, like the intermediate stage is so vast as well, because like you're saying, there's a lot of weight class changes that can occur there. And so you can kind of force yourself into this lifetime intermediate position <laughs> from that. <laughs> if you just keep moving up weight classes, you know what I mean? Um, but also like important coaching, like pro tip here, look at qualifying totals for each weight class. Honestly, the reason that I moved to 100 instead of 90 is because there's only a seven and a half kilo difference between their qualifying totals. Wow. So you can gain, 10 kilos body weight and only have to lift seven and a half more kilos across three lifts. So like consider that maybe in the intermediate stage, that's not really relevant to like that. That's much more, you might have one off cases as a coach where that happens, but um, don't worry about that during the early stages is what I'm getting at. Yeah. I think one of the, one last point I want to say about like the like weight class thing is like, I think like having that interesting motivation anyways is important there. Instead of like being like, Oh, I want to hear anybody else. Like, 
what's going to be best for me long-term becoming the strongest version of myself is I think that we kind of forget that, you know, we, we, we kind of, you know, especially we're looking at records, like what we actually care about is just lifting heavier weights and actually like getting stronger and whatnot. Um, you know, like I think like I maybe have the genetics to delve 800 pounds. It's not going to happen at 191. So like, I, I, you have to kind of bite the bullet. One of my favorite examples of this though is like Stephanie Cohen, like she has, she like cut down to like, I think like 118 or something like that. And it was crazy weight, weight cut. And she set world, world records, but they were lower than everything that she had done. And she's like, after the meeting, right. I felt empty. It was like, it, was, it wasn't like more than what I had already done. You know, it was like, you know, a world, world record. <laughs> so Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Cool. Um, so I think that last thing I wanted to sort of go over is we actually kind of went over a lot of the conversation I had is haphazardly. Um, the skill of training. So I think this is something that also was a part of launcher athletic development, which is probably the theme of this podcast. Um, yeah. What, like, how do we sort of hone that? Because I know that you've been a post too about how training is a skill and you need to hone it and Joe has too. And the thing is, comes down to like choosing the right weights, you know, pacing your, your, your progression, knowing when to auto-regulate and being okay with auto-regulation on handling emotions during training, et cetera. How would you coach somebody to becoming just a better lifter in general? Cool. Um, so I, I know at some point, whether it was the question you sent beforehand, also kind of talking about like, how do you manage your mood state as a lifter, the mental side of things. And that is a convoluted thing. And it, it that, that is where I'm going to throw in an all caps, bold font, like 32 size font. It depends because <laughs> it, there, there's no like, there, there's no way to go about it without knowing the individual. Um, all I can say is that in training, so I, I'm a self-proclaimed nihilist in a lot of ways, like optimistic nihilist. Um, so I think it's a matter of balancing apathy to some degree of just like, I'm just training. This is happening right now. This is something I'm doing. I'm not going to worry too much about it and still giving a shit. And like, you have to balance those things. And those two things are obviously at odds at all times. But um, if you care too much about training, very rarely does it go well. Um, or very rarely can you stay in the sport long enough to reach your potential. I think there's definitely exceptions to that. So that's not a, a thing that I can say everybody falls under. Um, so managing the mental side of things, I won't get into too much um, from the coaching side though, just make sure that your athletes expectations are reasonable and uh, not too specific. Um, I, I think so. you'll see it all the time. People want to hit certain numbers in competitions and they set very specific timeframes on those. How many times do those actually work? Do they pan out exactly as you intend? Very, very rarely, mm -hmm. especially as you get better as a lifter, you know, it's going to be harder to get those 10 kilo, 20 kilo PRs um, every time you step on the platform. So um, from the coaches and just make sure that the, their expectations are realistic and they're setting reasonable goals. Cause if they're not, there's, they're going to burn out immediately. Um, aside from that, as far as the skill of training goes with like rate of progression, for example, um, a lot of that has to do with knowing the lifter and kind of what you talked about earlier with like the ramping RP approach. Um, what's a reasonable jump from week one to week five of a block. Um, and then from there, I typically will give goal load ranges for them to kind of operate in. So it's not on the lifter to do all that load selection on their own. And they're, they're not flying blind pretty much. They kind of have a guide throughout the entire block that'll help them along the way. Um, what else, what else did you ask about with? Um, I think just, um, I said like 
on regulations. So like, for example, like, you know, it also ties into handling emotions, like a bad trading day, like, for example, like, mm. you know, and, and knowing how to make the right, right, you know, like choice there. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. So um, a long time ago, I may have archived it because I probably wrote a terrible caption or something, but a long, long time ago, I made a post just talking about both good and bad sessions represent a very, very small percentage of a training week, a training block, and a macro cycle. So don't read into them too much. Those notable highs and lows don't really matter, and they're not really indicative of anything meaningful long-term, typically. Um, so I that that's from a long, like, that's a deep dig on my Instagram to find that mm -hmm. one. I don't even know when I post that. Um, so making sure the athletes understand that. Um, and actually, that would be a critique of what's become a very popular training model, I think, that I have where people do these massive jumps week to week, and then they, they try to cap it off with this grandiose finish right before they deload. Um, I think that might be a little bit of a flawed model because that's assuming that everything's going to pan out perfectly outside of the gym and the gym. Yeah. And it's just going to be this crazy crescendo. And then you get to back off again and do the same thing again. Um, I think it can really make lifters derail if it doesn't go perfectly. I've seen it happen so, so many times. Um, so typically for me, I like to be a little bit more reactive with those decisions and I don't plan too far in advance. I'm not going to, I'm not a coach who likes to start with a super, super low RPE. And importantly, I like, I think Joe does this with a lot of his athletes. So I'm not critiquing it for everybody. People do respond well to this, but for me as a coach, I like to start with more of a moderate RPE and then just take gradual jumps from there across the block. And if there's an opportunity that opens up, say things are building really well, we're looking at top sets every week and I'm like, oh, they could do a 15 kilo jump next week and hit an all-time PR. Okay, there's your RPE nine to 10 that you're going to get prescribed. Let's go for it. Um, but I think planning those in advance, I've, I have dealt with this in the past two weeks with athletes where I'm like, okay, now I have to talk them off the ledge of, dude, it doesn't matter that much. Even though you didn't get that crazy top set you were hoping for, it's okay. Your average intensity across the block was higher than it's ever been, et cetera, et cetera. So um, making sure they understand that it represents a small percentage is big. And then also structuring your training as the coach to not put all your eggs into one basket with like, okay, we got to finish the block at this particularly high point, I think is a, a good way to kind of navigate that. And also mitigate the chances that you're going to have to have those hard conversations with the athlete if things do go um, not the plan. I was very similar my thought process with that. Actually, like my, my I can't like write as soon as myself put out a video on like low, low jumps. I was like, I don't agree with this. I, I don't ever tell my athletes to intentionally like undershoot a week one and like, and like you know, have these massive like progressions. Like I was, all, I, I was like, I think in that video he's talking about, for example, like like Andrew, like Lucky or like whatever his name is. Um, it's like he probably just legitimately feels that beat up on week one, and he probably is actually hitting RP, which is why he's adapting. Because I don't want to hear little yeah, say that, and they're like, oh, I started RPE three, and then it's like, I'm like, what happens with that is like you don't get better during the entire training block, and then you're like confused as to like why it wasn't there. At the end of your block and i think that you've had a really good point there of like dude like it's so funny i'll start off my i'll start off my blocks like i did like my, my starting double with like 573 i like two it felt worse than 650 you did like yeah and i don't really care because i'm like well it, it's a part of the process i'm not really as you know emotionally bought in, into that stuff but also just like understanding like look like you're not gonna be able to con to, to really control which lift is progressing like you know you're you're kind of a lot of this just coming down to, I think, understanding more of the training process and saying, well, 
I'm going to do everything in my power to facilitate strength gains. And then I'm, mm. as I'm going throughout the training, I'm going to execute each training session the best of my ability and think long-term and understand that, you know what, if I don't hit a five-pound PR this block, doesn't mean that this block was, like, worthless. Um, I think having those two, like, listed expectations, like you said, I always tell my athletes, look, if you can add a two-and-a-half-pound PR to your bench press and a five-pound to your squat and five-pound to your deadlift each block consistently, like, every single month, that's insane. And I think that we, we forget about that. And the reality, too, is that Eric Helms and I have talked about this on, like, several old podcasts, but Eric was, like, that could be easily, like, probably by, like, noise of, like, fatigue, <laughs> Of like are you actually getting that degree of like adaptation um so I'd like so you're, you're plus like you're it was like fatigue and like in a very, very even if you're managing everything as often as you can it can be very much like plus or minus like five percent uh even ten percent of like depending on like what, what's going on but you know it's just like five percent things are like unlocked like just in like your peak like training like max and that's another conversation of like don't base your weights on training or expectations around like what you hit i like the meat because they probably repeat for that. So the, the, uh, this is just a really, really good, 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 good conversation with just, I think it kind of comes down to a lot of times for myself at the community communication. I think that, I, think, yeah. I, do, I do think it's a little more on the, on the coach in this scenario um, to communicate to athletes how to train. Yeah, definitely. And, and I mean, I even had a recent example was the athlete was sort of trying to play into this idea of like, okay, we got to finish the block at this really, really high point. And so they had ascending doubles, I believe, on squats. And they just, what they started doing was, uh, even though the RPE differences were the same, it'd be a one RPE jump or one and a half RPE jump between sets. They started taking these massive, massive jumps, like jumping 20 kg from first ascending to second ascending set. And then come the last week, they took like a 25 kg jump and they failed it. And then they're just, they're like down spiraling from that point on, wondering what went wrong with the block and everything. And well, it was just an execution issue. Yeah. Not, not like a technique. It was it was how you executed the plan. Um, and so having that conversation with them, making sure they understand that even though it didn't go exactly as they would have expected, they still hit PRs across the block. And it was a really productive block because of that. Um, so, and there are certainly times where training doesn't go well. I think that's also important because a lot of coaches will try to add as many asterisks as they can next to a training block so that the athlete believes like, Oh no, this is still productive. Sometimes it's not working and you just have to own that as the coach and make the right adjustments and make sure the athletes okay with that too. Um, you know, but I think owning it as the coach is very, very helpful in those scenarios instead of trying to lie to them or, or kind of yeah. force them to believe a narrative that isn't necessarily true. It also builds more and more trust too. Like, you know, I'm not going to lie to one of my athletes. Like, you know, one of my clients, like Brandon, like he had like a, uh, he like quote unquote found what was working, but then life completely changed. I'm moving all across the world to Tokyo, did a more stressful job in the military. And like this last block sucked. It really sucked. And I was like, yeah, this block sucked. Like nothing changed. Like with like, the, well, this is what you responded best to last time. We need to change things. And like, that's okay. Um, and I think, especially with like athletes with like harder periods of training, I think this is when it's so important to have a coach and like just a you know a general appeal for like why lifters should all have coaches that they're really serious about this is it helps take the emotion out of things helps you know helps you have the like not be able not like jump off a ledge when things aren't going going well helps you also just trust yourself a little bit more and it creates a little better understanding of the process and like why are we doing certain certain things um because like for myself like even though i i coach i always tell like eric i'm like bro like i like i'm <laughs> 
I would they're like, oh my gosh, it's a double the right thing to do this blog. And it doesn't really matter that much for like you don't like you know as yourself, you, you really care, you're, you're really emotional. Having the objective eye, like looking back around and say, okay, well, cool. This is why I think went well with this blog. This is why I think didn't go well with well, well, this blog. This is why I think I, as your coach, need to do a better job of. This is what you know. I think that you need to do a better job of as an athlete. Of. I had a conversation with one of my clients who's like, I'm like, hey, so like, you know, there's a judge. I judge told him like, our training approach that you're supposed to be working isn't working anymore. This is what I'm going to do. This is what you need to start doing more if we really want this. It has to be both. Has to be both both ways. And so I think that's also part of just the skill of training is like. Good athlete again. Like it comes back to good athlete communication and realistic expectations, and um, you know, training as as intended, and you know, have getting, getting support when you, you need it. Because I mean, I always say like, people are like, but it's coaching really worth it. I'm like, dude, like, look at all the best powerlifters you want to be like. Like everybody has has, has a coach. <laughs> yeah, and really, so one of another another one of my rules sort of is like trying to control for as many things as possible with changes to training. So if I'm going to get experimental, I'm not going to scrap the entire old plan and then rewrite a new one. Because then if things don't go to plan, it's going to be really hard for me as a coach to be like, oh, uh, it's because we did this one thing or because we moved this one set here, because that's not what happened. I, I overhauled the entire plan. And how am I going to justify that and defend myself if things don't go to plan? So if I'm getting experimental with things, I try to just move one thing, try to one single new variation, for example. Um, but nothing too out there because then what happens if, uh, if the athlete doesn't have a productive block, they're kind of down spiraling and I need to talk them off that ledge and I can't, yeah. they're probably going to go to a different coach, you know, yeah. cause they should at that point. I screwed yeah. up. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree, agree with that. Um, changing like one thing at a time, um, knowing like what's working, like what probably is going to make, you know, the, the biggest shift. Um, I think also having like a good like network as, as, as a coach is important right you can like ask other coaches like hey well, i'm observing this with my athlete like that's actually what i use like eric a lot for is i'm like hey like i'm, I'm noticing this is like one of my athletes that's why i'm thinking like what do you think um and like same with like like my, my myself like you know with developing the skill of training with like eric it was kind of just like me saying like one of the biggest things that helped me is like aiden raider and i kind of like we both kind of laugh about like you have a very similar training response like where we have like a week zero where it's like a completely like you know like it's like the different exercises like a different like rep scheme and so I get pretty beat up yeah. at the end of the block. I found like a five week block in that way, like works better for, for me. You know, the traditional way, well, just wasn't dissipating fatigue enough for me. And right. um, then and doing that, you know, it got, uh, caused me to just like, I like to care less about it. It's like, you know, it's more like motivating. It's like less like motivated. It's like not like it's just, it's a that like makes me just sad. I'm like, dang, like this is a like lighter. <laughs> the last thing it feels harder. But it's something different. I'm like, okay, whatever. I don't care. And I'm excited. To go yeah. Using like a washout week sort of as a hard yeah. reset mm -hmm. before you get after it again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. Well, cool, man. Um, I think this was a great podcast. I think we cover a lot of ground here. Um, if people want to find you. Um, where should they come on? Oh, and thank you for coming on. I'm, yeah, I'm, absolutely. I'm side was showing there and become more Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you can find me. I mean, first and foremost, go to gamedaybarbell.com. Um, if you have any interest in working with myself or anyone like other coaches we have on staff. And like I said, we are adding two as we speak. Um, you can also find me on Instagram at systematic underscore strength. And if you're interested in coaching, DM me there as well. I'm pretty, pretty loose with that. Awesome, man. Well, I'll make sure I include those notes in the show notes below um, or those links right there. Um, and thank you guys for listening. Talk to you guys in the next one.